This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Consciously Using Our Time. In the first half, Joseph B. Worthlin and Jared T. Blanchard share their addresses, A Word to You, Generation of Destiny, and The Importance of Being Present. Then in the second half, Thomas H. Morris speaks on time, a precious commodity, a finite resource. My beloved brethren and sisters, I feel highly honored to be here on this beautiful campus of the Brigham Young University that I love and esteem and respect for the wonderful ideals that this great university teaches and promotes in the world today. I pray that I may have that same spirit that my beloved friend and brother Milton Backman prayed for in his beautiful prayer. You've all heard, I suppose, about the Guinness Book of World Records. It tabulates all sorts of unique and amazing things ranging from the ridiculous to the sublime, such as, what snake has the longest fangs? Who had the longest record without solid food? Who has the largest mushroom farm in the world? Who grew the lemon with the greatest circumference? What person demonstrates the largest chest measurement? Who set the record for eating the most bananas? in ten minutes. What is it human beings fear most? Who lost the most weight in the shortest time? And so on ad infinitum. Looking at the list so far, I must admit, there is not an evidence very much that is truly sublime. For more than solid achievement, too many people are captured by the uncontrollable passion for notoriety, publicity, and sheer power of any kind, however futile, foolhardy, or fatal. For utter futility and absurdity, consider this. A group of college students, intent on getting in Guinness's record book, sponsored a widely publicized thumb-twiddling contest. One young man was proclaimed the champion of thumb-twiddlers in all the world. He had twiddled his thumbs without interruption for more than 20 hours. It is quite likely that the students had never heard of or at least taken seriously the advice of Benjamin Franklin, one of the wisest of Americans. Franklin warned, Do not squander time, for that is the stuff life is made of. Right in line with Franklin's stern pronouncement, is a memorable legend. A sage of great wisdom was asked by an inquisitive young man, what is the greatest gift in the world? The greatest gift in the world? Why, that, my son, replied the sage without hesitation, would be to have all the time you need. But mark you, such a measure of time can be given to no one. Each of us must help himself to his portion and learn to use it wisely, else many blessings of this most precious gift will be denied him. For every human being, time is a resource. 
indeed a unique resource. It can neither be accumulated like money nor stockpiled like raw materials. We are forced and compelled to spend it at a fixed rate of 60 seconds every minute. It passes at this predetermined rate no matter what we do. We have no choice, no freedom, or free agency in this regard. Time, unlike water or practically anything else you can think of, can neither be turned off nor replaced. As can be done with water in a barrel, no spigot may be installed to regulate and control its flow, and no refilling device may be applied to replenish the quantity. And it is now and always irretrievable. The question is not one of managing the clock, but one of managing ourselves with respect to the clock. In essence, time is the most unrelenting and inelastic element in our entire existence. For as Peter Drucker, distinguished management consultant, has said, time is the scarcest resource, and unless it is managed, nothing else can be managed. It is then not how much we have, but rather what we do with what we have. The use of time implies an understanding of two basic concepts that most of us have been slow to grasp. Concept number one haunts us with the thought that time carries no guarantee that it will serve us. It is only made available. Concept number two alerts us to the reality that it remains for each one of us, alone and singly, to learn how to get the most out of the passing hours, days, weeks, months, and even eternity. In this context, the T in time stands for tenacity. To worthy ideals, pursuits such as twiddling our thumbs or spending endless hours watching a variety of miscellaneous and all too often degrading television or other equally certain killers of the spark of life itself, we can productively engage ourselves in meaningful pursuits. Here is the classic example on the subject of how we become what we are now and may ultimately become. Jesus taught that the light of the body is the eye. This, in plain words, means what we think, see, understand, conceive, and imagine as the instigator and forerunner of all of our actions. And Jesus added, If therefore thine eye, that is, understanding and imagination, be single, that is, tenaciously directed towards worthy goals and objectives, then says Jesus in these divine and lovely words, The whole body shall be full of light, or the highest degree of insight and understanding and willpower and motivation, which is the sure road to supreme effort, to accomplishment and achievement. Continuing, Jesus depicts the ultimate tragedy in these words, But if thine eye, understanding, and purpose be evil, the whole body shall be full of darkness. If, therefore, the light that is in thee is darkness, how great is that darkness? Or, as another translator has expressed it, if your eye is pure, there will be sunshine in your soul. 
But if your eye is clouded with evil thoughts and desires, you're in deep spiritual darkness. And oh, how deep that darkness can be. Never in all philosophy has there been a clear, stronger condemnation of self-willed arrogance and blindness in discerning the meaning and purpose of life or even defiance of God himself than in the sublime passage that follows. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. And in straight, unvarnished language, mammon means anything that weakens reason or establishes the power of the body and physical hungers and appetites over the spiritual. Jesus was not uncertain in any way about what he stood for. Every one of us should have etched on his mind and in his heart. In this irreverent and materialistic world, these immortal words of the Master Teacher said he, Life is more than meat, and the body is more than raiment. A poor attitude, ignorance of the purpose of life on earth, a self-sufficient arrogance, and a spiritually chaotic, undisciplined life may be fickle, defeating, and tragic. And he, Jesus, spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, because I have no room? where to bestow my fruits. And he said, This I will do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, ink, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night, Thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. A modern translator has Jesus putting the same idea in these emphatic words. Don't store up treasures here on earth where they can erode away or may be stolen. Store them in heaven where they will never lose their value. If your wealth is in heaven, your heart will be there also. Yes, every man is a fool who gets rich on earth but not in heaven. Urging us to press on to higher and better things, our own President Spencer W. Kimball, in the concluding speech of, that, of the last conference, said, We have paused on some plateaus long enough. Let us resume our journey onward and upward. We have been diverted at times from fundamentals on which we must now focus in order to move forward as a person or as a people. And one of the fundamentals that President Kimball is presently emphasizing is the full utilization of our time. I recall an incident with him that highlights this fundamental. Several years ago, during a state during an area conference in Amsterdam, early in the morning, I was about to get on an elevator, and to my surprise, 
There stood President Kimball. In his usual warm and friendly way, he said, Step in and join me. We rode only to the next floor together, but in that short time of about 30 seconds, he gave me enough challenges and assignments pertaining to our missionary labors in Europe fully to occupy my time for years to come. Since then, I have often wondered what the assignments and challenges might have been had we ridden another floor together. <laughs> My purpose thus far has been to make significant and urgent the phenomenon of the fleeting moments in our lives, the stuff of which both dreams and reality are made. Let's now listen to a word from Thoreau, American philosopher and immortalizer of Walden's Pond. If you have built castles in the air, your work need not be lost. That is where they should be. Now put a foundation under them. This foundation might be described by words represented by the last three letters in the word time. These are integrity, morality, and example, qualities that are so lacking in nearly every strata of our national life that General Omar Bradley of World War, World War II fame brilliantly, brilliantly discussed the problem in these words. Humanity is in danger of being trapped in this world by its moral adolescence. Our knowledge of science has clearly outstripped our capacity to control it. We have too many men of science, too few men of God. We have grasped the mystery of the atom and rejected the Sermon on the Mount. Man is stumbling blindly though through spiritual darkness while toying with the precarious secrets of life and death. The world has achieved brilliance without wisdom, power without conscience. Ours is a world of nuclear giants and ethical infants. We know more about war than we know about peace more about killing than we know about living. And Henry J. Taylor, noted news analyst of an era long gone, said this, Essentially, the problem is one of integrity. In a home, in a business, in a nation, integrity is what upholds all. It is this weakening integrity that seems to me to be the greatest illness everywhere. The grand corruption of our age in fact, is the inability of so many eminent human beings the world over to practice simple honesty and speak the simple truth. Arnold Toynbee, a great scholar, studied 26 civilizations. Of these, 16 are now dead. Nine of the remaining 10 are broken down and in decline. His research shows that history is filled with the record of nations that rose to power, and then because the people lack spirituality, courage, and integrity. Jesus gave significance to a scathing word in the vocabulary describing human inconstancies. He called this instability hypocrisy and the offenders hypocrites. Seldom have human beings been so stigmatized, being so harshly indicted. 
said Jesus to those who profess and declare one thing and act in a compromising or opposite way, Woe unto you, hypocrites! For ye are like whited sepulchers, which appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. Even so ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. In Roman times, sculptors sometimes sought to conceal breaks and cracks in a statue with melted beeswax. A purchaser thus deceived and believing that he was buying a flawless piece of marble would place such a statue proudly in his atrium. In a few weeks the beeswax would dry out, crumble away, and expose the ugly defects. This practice of beeswax trickery became so widespread that reputable sculptors guaranteed their works signed Sarah, which literally translated means without wax. Our word sincere comes from this rebellion against the use of wax to deceive and to cheat. Jesus cried out for followers who would spurn hypocrisy in both thought and deed. For disciples signed Sarah, without wax, sincere, cultivating and possessing integrity and morality, whose daily conduct would glorify the flawless example and of whom he could say, Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid, and neither can a good example nor its force and power. Perhaps the poet summarizes more sublimely my feelings concerning that attitude and yearning which, if developed in each of us, will sustain us through example and integrity, morality in our own personal lives. Listen to the poet as he petitions our Heavenly Father for the essential help. These are his words. My heart, dear God, give me a pure heart that I may see thee, a humble heart that I may hear thee, a heart of love that I may serve thee, a heart of faith that I may abide in thee. The term generation gap is constantly used to describe the chasm that may exist between youth and an older generation. A little thought, however, will expose the hoax in such a posture. We so often get hooked on words, and the words become more important than the facts. In general semantics, this is called mistaking the map for the territory, and this is exactly what it is. In our religion and our wonderful Church, there is no generation gap. It is not age that divides us, but eternal, timeless principles that unite us. Believing in Jesus Christ and His gospel, our basic interests and aspirations at any age are the same, as are the ideals and principles by which we live from day to day. These two were summarized by Jesus in a most dramatic manner during His earthly ministry. According to the account in Luke, one came and said unto him, Good Master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And what individual would not yearn to know or give nearly anything he possessed for the answer, especially if it came from the Lord himself? 
And here it is, said Jesus. If thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. Note the magical words. If thou wilt enter into life, enter into life indeed. Is not that the real quest of each of us? Seriously, is there any other? When asked what he meant by the statement, keep the commandments, Jesus said, Thou shalt do no murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. And then follows the positive, the glorious admonitions. Honor thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. What a magnificent program for life at its best. These commandments and all that they encompass constitute a glorious challenge and an unassailable fortress against evil. They involve the use of time in the best and highest sense and will certainly safeguard our integrity and morality and perpetuate the good example. There is no generation gap, only ideals, principles, aspirations, enthusiasm, and increasing perfection as we continue to enter into life together. Remembering these two great guidelines from the Book of Mormon, first, that wickedness never was happiness, and second, that man is that he might have joy. As we diligently strive to crown our lives with meaning, accomplishment, joy, and happiness, let us ponder this magnificent passage from a modern play by Samuel Beckett entitled Waiting for Godot. Two tramps are lingering along a country road, and in the darkness a cry suddenly rings out for help. Cautiously and at length, they discuss the risks and the dangers of responding and becoming involved. Then one of them says, Let us not waste time in idle discourse. Let us do something while we have the chance. To all mankind they were addressed, those cries for help still ringing in our ears. But at this place, at this moment, all mankind is us, whether we like it or not. Let us make the most of it before it is too late. In actual fact, those cries are for you. You are the vital, the critical link, the ones who are on the verge of making it all happen, of representing the loftiest gospel ideals to all the world. And in you they either live or die. You are at this moment the generation of destiny. For you it is not too late. It is just the beginning. Life for each of us is you. You are on the threshold. As Jesus said, you are entering into life, eternal life. The influence of the gospel will not only dispel a darkness from our own lives, but cast a radiance into the lives of those around us. No one is saved solely and simply for himself alone, just as no lamp is lighted merely for its own benefit. I bear humble testimony to you on this occasion that God lives, that Jesus is the Christ, that this is the true Church that was restored through revelation to the Prophet Joseph Smith. I pray for each of us 
that we may be motivated to achieve the life-stretching, soul-stretching ideals of the gospel. I bear my sincere testimony that there is only one way in which this may be done. That way is to enter fully into life, as taught by our Savior, the Prophet Joseph Smith, and our own divinely inspired President Spencer W. Kimball. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You're listening to Finding Center. We've just heard from Joseph B. Worthlin, and now we'll hear from Jared T. Blanchard for his address, The Importance of Being Present. It is truly humbling to speak to an audience of such talented and accomplished individuals, many of whom are my dear friends. I'm especially happy to have my family here with me. I can honestly say I would not have made it to this point if not for their presence in my life. Which brings me to my chosen topic, the importance of being present, both for our own happiness and for the good of others. It has been said that 80% of success is showing up, but even more important than our physical presence is our mental presence. In his book, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis gives a profound description of the present that has stuck with me for years. He writes, The present is the point at which time touches eternity. Of the present moment and of it only, humans have an experience analogous to the experience which God has of reality as a whole. In it alone, freedom and actuality are offered. Yet sometimes we live in the past, like Napoleon Dynamite's Uncle Rico, who obsessed that he could be soaking it up in a hot tub with his soulmate if only the coach would have put him in fourth quarter. (laughs) Yes, you probably could have won that intramural t-shirt if not for that one ref who had it out for you. Or you may have been the next Albert Einstein if not for that one failed math test freshman year. I may or may not be speaking from personal experiences. (laughs) Nevertheless, we can't have freedom or actuality or true happiness if we live in the past. That also goes for the future. For the past few months, my wife Lara and I have stressed over our future plans. There were and still are so many unknowns. Where would I be accepted for graduate school? When would Lara graduate? Where would we like to live and work? I'm sure our experience is not foreign to this audience. It's easy to say, I'll be happy once I graduate, or once I get accepted to grad school, or once I get this job, or once I have a house. But that worldview can keep us from enjoying our current situation. Remember, the present is the time when we have freedom and actuality. Use that freedom to create a fulfilling life now instead of basing your happiness on something that hasn't happened yet. As we avoid being prisoners of the past and future, it is also important to avoid being prisoner to present distractions. Smartphones, while wonderful tools, are common conveyors of distractions. We may well ask ourselves, how many friends have I passed by but not noticed because I was watching fail videos? How many test questions have I missed because I was checking Snapchat in class? How many innocent tree limbs could have been spared a collision with my face if I had looked up from Facebook? (laughs) There are a plethora of other distractions that keep us from being truly present. They range from upcoming homework assignments to work responsibilities and even social worries. For example, I remember daydreaming about Thanksgiving break while working on the BYU Mars rover during my capstone class hours. 
Yet, I fretted away that same Thanksgiving vacation worrying about the rover, when I could have been enjoying time with my family. Work when it is time to work, and play when it is time to play. One of the highlights of my undergraduate experience was singing in the BYU Men's Chorus. Our beloved conductor, Sister Rosalind Hall, always reminded us to be present in our rehearsals. Sing when it is time to sing was one of her mantras. She emphasized that the only way to be excellent is to be focused on what you are currently doing, leaving all distractions outside. She told us that by doing so, we would not only be a better choir technically, but we would be able to touch the hearts of our audiences. This is a lesson for life, she said, insinuating that we can make our lives like a beautiful song. When we avoid living in the past or future and free ourselves of distractions, we can not only find fulfillment for ourselves but also serve those around us. One of the pieces we sang this year emphasized this idea. The lyrics were the words of the poem A Psalm of Life by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. They read as follows. Trust no future, howe'er pleasant. Let the dead past bury its dead. Act. Act in the living present. Heart within and God o'erhead. Let us then be up and doing with a heart for any fate. Still achieving, still pursuing, learn to labor and to wait. We all entered this great university to learn. I pray that now as we go forth to serve in our homes, workplaces, and church callings, we may live in the present and avoid distraction. By doing so, we will find freedom and actuality for ourselves and be better prepared to touch the lives of others. If our lives are a song, now is the time to sing. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Consciously Using Our Time. We've just heard from Jared T. Blanchard. After the break, we'll return with Thomas H. Morris for Time, a Precious Commodity, a Finite Resource. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Consciously Using Our Time. Next is Thomas H. Morris, professor in the BYU Department of Geological Sciences at the time of this address, titled Time, a Precious Commodity, a Finite Resource. Brothers and sisters, it's an honor to be with you today, and uh, I too pray that the Spirit may be with all of us. Today I'd like to share a few thoughts about time. And to illustrate some aspects about time, I wish to tell you about a few of my heroes, one from the Book of Mormon, one from the field of science, and one that is very personal to me. I, like you, have many heroes, the great coaches and teachers I have had, my Ph.D. advisor, my colleagues, my brother and my sister, my great parents and my sons and my sweetheart, and many, many more. These people all believed in me and gave me a chance. I will be forever in their debt, for they shared their time with me, and time is one of the most precious commodities of this life. As a petroleum geologist, I am awed by the power of fossil fuels. Think of it. We can put a little bit of gasoline into a tank, start up an engine, pile ten people or undergraduate students, whatever the case may be, into an 8,000-pound van, 
and drive it up a mountainside at 70 miles per hour simply by depressing a gas pedal a couple of inches. This alone would make fossil fuels a precious commodity, but in our modern hydrocarbon society, many of us also use it to heat our homes, cook our pancakes, and warm our morning showers. To all of us, fossil fuels are a precious commodity. Yet fossil fuels are also a finite resource. It has taken Mother Nature millions of years to deposit, generate, migrate, and trap this precious commodity in the deeply buried rocks beneath Earth's surface. Yet it is estimated that since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, it will take humankind just 300 years to deplete this finite resource, just a blip on even the human history timescale. This then begs the questions, what is my stewardship over it? How will I use it? Today, for a few moments, I would like us all to consider these same questions relative to our time on Earth, this precious mortal existence. Carl Sagan, the author and great spokesman for the cosmos, used to browbeat us by telling us that we as humankind are arrogant to assume that there is not life beyond our planet given the immensity of space and the universe. This concept was easy enough for LDS people, yet after a lifetime of study, Sagan found no solid evidence for extraterrestrial life. In fact, in viewing our tiny blue planet from space, he said, quote, It underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another, to preserve and cherish the only home we've ever known, the pale blue dot." Unquote. Before his premature death due to myelodysplasia, Carl Sagan suggested that life on Earth was pretty precious and that we should take care of it. May I suggest that time on Earth is pretty precious? Maybe we should better take care of it. Indeed, just like fossil fuels, it is a precious commodity and a finite resource. The questions resurface. What is my stewardship over my time on Earth? How will I use it? As a geoscientist, I have thought a lot about time. We geologists commonly throw around big numbers relative to time and age of the Earth. For example, with solid evidence, geoscientists contend that the Earth is approximately 4.7 billion years old, assuming time as we know it. Can we even comprehend what a billion is? That's a very difficult task. So let's pare it down. For several years, my students and I have been engaged in studying a Jurassic Age formation in Utah's Colorado Plateau. The Entrada Sandstone has created the splendor of Arches National Park, Goblin Valley and Crotacombe Basin State Parks, and other spectacular scenery in Utah. We have now determined that the Entrada Sandstone was deposited from approximately 165 to 162 million years ago. So the Entrada Sandstone has been around for 162 million years. This is only 3.4% of Earth's history. But that's still a big number, so let's pare it down some more. Malut Milankovitch, one of my scientific heroes, who I will discuss later in this talk, determined that the elliptical path that Earth carves around the Sun varies. At times it is more circular, and at other times it's more elliptical. This variation in the shape of the elliptic orbit has a distinct periodicity of approximately 100,000 years. 
This and other orbital variations affect the amount of incoming solar radiation and forces Earth in and out of ice ages. When Earth goes into a cold glacial condition, it stores ocean water on the continents as huge ice sheets. This process of building continental-scale ice sheets effectively lowers sea level by hundreds of feet. Therefore, Earth's oceans rise and fall at a precise periodicity of 100,000 years, which is a mere 0.0021% of Earth history. 100,000 years. Still too big a number to comprehend? Let's get a little closer to home. Have you ever wondered why our campus is so flat when it is located literally a mile from the Wasatch Front, which quickly rises to 11,000 feet above sea level? It turns out that our campus was created by the Provo River when it deposited its sediment as a delta into a great freshwater lake called Lake Bonneville. Yes, just a mere 15,000 years ago, if you were sitting exactly where you are, you would be under 60 feet of water watching fish in an occasional iceberg float over your head. As climate changed in the past 15,000 years, due primarily to Milankovitch orbital variations, Lake Bonneville began to dry up and shrink, effectively concentrating her salt into what is now the Great Salt Lake. So our campus was created just 15,000 years ago. It represents only 0.00032% of Earth history. Let's go one more time with the analogy. Life expectancy for the average person in the United States is 78.5 years. So if you are average, and I know all of you are exceptional, you'd be part of only 1.7 times 10 to the minus 6th percent of Earth history. That's 0.0000017%. No, I'm not trying to make you feel like a zero, but in a relative perspective, life is short. The scriptures teach us that our time here on earth is not the same as God's time. For me to comprehend time, I think in terms of being sent to this earth life and being placed within an envelope of time. When this life is over, we are plucked out of this envelope and return to Heavenly Father's realm, a place where time does not exist as we know it. In this way, I can just barely get my head around the eternal nature of God and man. One of my heroes in the Book of Mormon is King Benjamin. In my mind, he is a man's man because he taught by example. He walked the walk. He was focused on a clear perspective. He knew what he was about. And what was he about? He describes himself in Mosiah, quote, And even I myself have labored with mine own hands that I might serve you, unquote. He taught that service to our fellow man is inseparable from service to God. He taught this principle by example. He used his time to serve others by teaching and leading through word and action. He also taught us that this time in life is given to us from day to day and moment to moment. He said, quote, I say unto you that if ye shall serve him who has created you from the beginning, and is preserving you from day to day by lending you breath, that you may live and move and do according to your own will, 
and even supporting you from one moment to another. I say, if you should serve him with all your whole souls, yet you would be unprofitable servants." The question returns, if my time is given to me from one moment to another, even from breath to breath, what will I do with it? King Benjamin chose to serve others. A little more than a year ago, one of our former graduate students, Shane Long, returned to campus to recruit geoscientists for his company. In a presentation that I requested he give to our students, he shared an experience that changed him. This story also had a profound impact on me. He was on assignment for his company in Lagos, Nigeria, the eighth most populous country in the world, and one where there is much poverty. As Shane was driven in a bulletproof vehicle from the airport to the meeting facility, people and children were abundant in the streets. He spent three and a half hours in that vehicle as progress was slow. During those hours, he had some downtime to observe and ponder what was about him just outside of his vehicle. At one point, he observed two little girls playing in the dusty street. They were playing hand games with each other. Shane's attention to them was intensified because he recalled a similar experience he had just a couple of weeks earlier. It was his own daughter who, while waiting to get picked up from her swimming lessons, was playing similar hand games with a friend. The circumstances of these two experiences, however, were vastly different. And in Shane's own words, quote, the contrast could not have been more striking, unquote. In those precious quiet moments, clarity came to him. He received a vision or personal revelation that told him directly that from that moment on he was to be a steward over his salary. He fully internalized how he was a product of hard work, good people, and the blessing of circumstance. He was to be wiser and more caring with the gifts that were given him. In that poignant moment, he resolved to change. I've thought a lot about that experience of this great young man. I've thought about his willingness to share that experience with our present students. I've thought about the degree to which I serve others by sharing my gifts, time being the most precious of them all. Am I doing my part? Am I serving my God by serving others to the extent that I should? Or do I waste a lot of my most precious gifts that are given me? When was the last poignant moment that I had wherein I resolved to change. Maybe it's about time. President Mary G. Romney said, quote, Service is not something we endure on this earth so we can earn the right to live in the celestial kingdom. Service is the very fiber of which an exalted life in the celestial kingdom is made, unquote. Service, then, is the ultimate way of spending our time. Let's examine another way in which one of my heroes spent his time. Milutin Milankovic was a Serbian mathematician. As a young man in the early 1900s, Milankovic got caught up in the fervor of the possibility that Earth had experienced more than one ice age. Encouraged by the work of several predecessors, including Scotsman James Kroll, Milankovic realized that several variations in Earth's orbit around the Sun affected the amount of incoming solar radiation that hit Earth. This variation in solar radiation, he reasoned, could throw Earth in and out of ice ages. 
The mathematical proofs, however, were difficult to develop. Indeed, it took 30 years of his life to finally produce and conclude these proofs and the associated graphical curves. Milankovitch died in 1958 at the age of 79, at a time when most geologists had rejected his theory of the Ice Ages. Almost three decades after his death, and with technological advances that were unheard of during his time, geoscientists finally proved that Milankovitch was right all along. Unfortunately, he was long gone. Time had deprived him of the experience of knowing that his geological colleagues fully acknowledged the validity of his theory. Milankovitch's theory has now been widely accepted and evidenced from a variety of disciplines. His calculations have been shown to be the driving mechanisms of the great ice ages of the geologic past. They are now considered fundamental in understanding Earth's past climates. Furthermore, they have been extremely useful in petroleum exploration because as Earth stores vast quantities of ocean water on the continents in the form of massive continental ice sheets, global sea level drops. When Earth enters a warm interglacial period, this ice melts. The meltwater runs back to the ocean and sea level rises again. This fluctuation in the level of the uh, ocean is on the order of 400 vertical feet. Therefore, the shorelines and the great deltas of the world shift their location over 200 miles across the continental shelf from its low stand position during cold glacial maximums to its high stand position during warm interglacials. The great deltas of the world are prolific in producing accumulations of oil and natural gas. Therefore, a knowledge of the driving mechanisms of these movements through time has greatly aided in the discovery of fossil fuels on the world's continental shelves. So in a very broad sense, Milut Milankovitch has affected each of our lives. Certainly, the time he spent on his calculations has served mankind well. On a more personal note, Milankovitch directly affected my life because as a graduate student at the University of Wisconsin, I studied Milankovitch cycles in the Arctic Ocean. Upon graduation, I was fortunate enough to be given several offers of employment by oil companies while my colleagues, many of whom were much brighter than me, struggled to even get one offer. I quickly came to the full realization that the multiple job offers were not a result of my sterling personality, but were indeed a direct reflection of my knowledge of Milankovitch theory. Milankovitch helped me to secure my first job, which has trickled down to other opportunities, including my present position here at BYU. There is one more story about Malut Milankovic that gives him hero status in my life and directly addresses the topic of time. I stated that it took 30 years of Milankovic's life to produce his mathematical proofs. Early in this process, he was confident that his theory was correct. Now all he needed was time to make the necessary calculations. Then, to his dismay, World War I broke out. The invading army captured him and took him to a fortress. He would spend the next six months in confinement as a prisoner of war. Of the day he was put into prison, he later recalled, quote, The heavy iron door was closed behind me. The massive rusty lock gave a rumbling moan when the key was turned. 
I adjusted to my new situation by switching off my brain and staring apathetically into the air. After a while, I happened to glance at my suitcase. My brain began to function again. I jumped up and opened the suitcase. In it, I had stored the papers on my cosmic problem. I leafed through the writings, pulled out my faithful fountain pen out of my pocket, and began to write and count. As I looked around my room after midnight, I needed some time before I realized where I was. The little room seemed like the night quarters on my trip through the universe." Milutin Milankovic was focused on his goals and his life's purpose. He knew what he was about. He despaired only momentarily before awakening himself. He chose not to waste his time, so to speak. He turned his circumstance around. He seemingly relished the six months he spent in confinement as a prisoner of war. Brothers and sisters, do we relish our time on earth? Do we have enough purpose in our lives to shake off despair and apathy? President Uchtdorf recently challenged us to prioritize all the good things we do to do the best things we can. I have found that on occasion it is healthy for me to step back and contemplate what I really want to gain from this life and the precious moments that I have. It often invigorates me and gives me more focus. When recently discussing time as a precious commodity and a finite resource with one of my graduate students, he blatantly stated, quote, Doc, we don't have time to make mistakes in this life. It's too short, and we lose the opportunity to accomplish something good. How profound. Please permit me to tell you about one last hero of mine, one that is very personal. This story also started with a moment of despair. In 1990, we were blessed with the birth of our third son, Connor. Within moments of his birth, he was whisked away by the nurses for cleaning up and ordinary checkups. Soon thereafter, however, a solemn doctor returned to my wife's recovery room to inform us that our son had Down syndrome. As the words came out of his mouth, I vividly remember the deep despair that sank through my body. I felt ill and turned away from the doctor and prayed silently to Heavenly Father and asked him to turn back time and not let the doctor say those words. It didn't happen. Time went on. Over the course of the next two days, I was in deep despair, thinking of all the challenges that the future would hold. On the morning of that third day, I said a prayer asking Heavenly Father to deliver me from despair. I felt like I couldn't go on and I needed His help. That afternoon, a good neighbor and a friend came to visit. He took me aside and told me that our little boy needed a name and a blessing, and then prodded me to go with him to the hospital and give him one. I agreed, and as, I, as we finished the blessing, I watched our little Connor in the incubator struggling for life. In that instance, the words came to my mind, One day at a time, Tom. One day at a time. The despair seemingly melted away. I had my answer. My little boy was fighting for life. I was surely going to give him my best, one day at a time. Since that moment, I have never worried too much about the future with Connor. We have taken it one day at a time, moment by moment. 
Connor taught me not to be overwhelmed and fall into despair. Break life down into bite-sized pieces, chew hard, and savor the moment. For nearly 22 years, our life's ride with Connor has been awesome. I have often thought all I have to do is provide him with a good home and then hang on to his coattails, for he will surely whisk me back to the celestial kingdom. He is a perfect example of unconditional love. He has been the glue to our family. He has made each of us a better person, especially his papa bear. And may I add that he is a great field assistant and a superb fishing partner. Connor seems to know what he is about. He wastes no time in sharing his talents, smiles, hugs, and unconditional love to all he meets. In the Doctrine and Covenants section 60, verses, verse 13, the Lord instructs his early missionaries to, quote, Not idle away thy time, neither shalt thou bury thy talent, that it may not be known. This instruction seems fitting as we soldier on through life one day at a time. My three heroes have provided great insight into the use of time. King Benjamin used his time to serve others and thereby his God by word and action. His many acts of service led to the strength of his words. He knew what he was about. Malut Milankovic was also focused in his life's work. He found little time to despair. He plowed forward, sometimes with delight, even under seemingly dire circumstance. And finally, Connor has taught me that life comes to us one day at a time. He taught me not to become overwhelmed with problems that might happen in the future, but instead use our gifts and talents from moment to moment and savor our precious time together. Brothers and sisters, our life on earth may be our best chance to prove our mettle. It comes to us one day at a time. What will we do in this life, this year, this day, this moment? Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ have given us this time. They have believed in us. They have given us all a chance. They are the real heroes. May we have the wisdom, purpose, and drive to know what we are about and to take advantage of our time here on earth. May we reflect often and prioritize our time, for time is a precious commodity, a finite resource. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, amen. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Consciously Using Our Time with thoughts from Joseph B. Worthland, Jared T. Blanchard, and Thomas H. Morris. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.